It's August 14th, 2011, and this is The Candid Frame. And actually, it's a special episode of The Candid Frame that was recorded in front of a live audience in San Francisco last month. I participated in the Adobe pop-up store that uh, appeared near downtown San Francisco, and part of that included a live conversation with Scott Kilby, who is the founder of Kilby Training and the National Association of Photoshop Professionals. Many of you uh, probably already know him if you listen to the show. And uh, it was a great opportunity to talk to Scott about photo education, photography, and dealing with criticism. So uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation. There's a few issues with the audio in the first three minutes of it, but then it improves markedly after that. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Scott Kelby. Thank you for coming back and attending the Photoshop in the world, Photoshop in you, Photoshop world is late. Um, here. And tonight I'm very delighted to have with us Ibarra um, Nexcarello. He is a photographer, educator, and author. He's got more than 20 years experience in the photographic field. Um, he has written this very delightful book too, Chasing the Light where I think that he, it's, it's a great photography book, but also he really encourages us to slow down and to think about how we see and what we see in addition to how and what we photograph. Um, he is a very worthy person, has all sorts of things going on. He's a regular contributor, both with photographs and articles to a number of publications, Digital Pro, or Magazine, a number of others. He is an adjunct professor at the um, Artistic Art, Artistic Art Center, the Art Center College of Design, that several times. Um, and you can find his online classes at BetterPhoto.com. He's also on the board of DIMA, the Digital Media Association, and is a co-founder of Alas Media, a multimedia institute. So we are very delighted to have him here with us today. He is the producer and host of the Candid Frame of Photography podcast, and that podcast is being recorded here tonight. And so I will pass it over to Barnes. Please welcome. Hello, hello, hello. We good? All right. I'm Ivan X, and uh, I'm excited to have all of you here. This is the first time I've ever interviewed a photographer in front of a live audience. So this is first, and I'm really excited to have Scotty here. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, Scott. 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 That's my dad called me, Scotty. I said I'm not your dad, I'll just get to Scott. But um, for you, some of you guys who don't know, he's the editor and publisher of Photoshop User Magazine and Layers Magazine. Uh, he's the president of the National Association of Photoshop Professionals and the Kelby Media Group. Uh, he's produced over 52 books. All of which he's written himself. Yes. yes. <laughs> I actually write my books. I don't have a ghostwriter. And um, he is a look, man of many hats. So uh, I've been really looking forward to uh, to interviewing him. So why don't will you join me in welcoming me, welcoming Scott Kelby? Thank you very much. Um, I've had the chance to watch you in. Uh, your Kelby training online and uh, the Photoshop YouTube TV and today was the first time that I got to see you do your thing in front of a live audience and it seemed like you were very much 
in your element. Is, uh, what do you love about having the opportunity to share what you know with photography with a live audience? Well, it's interesting. When you're, when you're an author and when you do things over video, you never get to actually see the people that you're teaching. You, you hope that they like it. You hope that you're resonating with them. But when you're with a live audience, you get instant feedback. Like you look out there and you can see if people are getting it. And I can tell you as an educator, when you look out there and you see people nodding and they're like, oh, I get it. It's, that's it. I mean, that's the, why you do it. It's the, the rush that you get when you hit somebody and they get it and they start nodding. They're like, oh yeah. You're like, yay. You know, that's for the educator. That's the home run. So that's what I love so much about it. And the other thing is, uh, and I still go out. I'm going out, I think 22 city uh, tour this year. And I'm, and I've been doing this since 1993 every year going out on, on these seminars. And the reason I still do it is if you don't get out there and talk to other photographers, you don't know what their problems are, what their struggles are and stuff. By going out there on the seminars, I teach like five classes a day and there's a break in between each one. And I answer questions for every single break, which are 15 to 20 minutes and then a half hour at lunch. And I don't care. I just came back from uh, two days in, in Canada and Vancouver and Calgary doing a seminar for 900 photographers. And I don't care where you go. I've taught in Japan. I've taught in Europe. The photographers have the same struggles, the same questions and all, but they, but they change over time. So when you go out and you get to do it in public, you hear their struggles and then you can go back and figure out how to help them with what, what their struggles are. And if they're struggling with the marketing, if they're struggling with lighting, whatever it is, you at least when I go back to the office, I go, Hey guys, and I'll tell everybody, I'll call our guys together and go, I heard this seven times in Calgary. They're really struggling with blank, you know, whatever that thing is. And then it really helps me as an educator because I'm not kind of working in a bubble. I'm actually getting to hear what real life photographers are struggling with, whether in Photoshop, Lightroom, lighting or whatever. Is it the fact that you are helping these people practice something that they're passionate about and love that sort of sustains you? Because I can imagine that teaching as often as you do, other people would really burn out and it, and it would get to be a, a stick. They're, they get paid to do this, they get paid to teach, and they sort of get really burned out, and it becomes relevant. So is that what sort of sustains you and keeps it fresh for you, or do you have moments where you go, i got to go out there and do it again? No, you know, you know what it is? I'll be, I'll be really honest with you, and I realized this about myself a number of years ago. If I'm teaching something that I'm excited about, like if I feel like, man, I've got something really cool and I'm really excited about it, I can stay excited as long as I can. When it starts to kind of get stale, like in other words, when I'm not excited, like I haven't learned anything new in a while, that's when I can really feel it. So what I, I do is we, we print workbooks. So when we do these seminars, people come and they have a workbook that follows right along with me. So like for the tour I'm on now, I have a workbook and they get it. and it follows the exact same techniques and everything that I'm doing they have in their workbook. But I only print enough workbooks for three cities at a time. Now, I would save a lot of money if we printed enough workbooks for 20 cities at a time. But I know that in those three cities, I read every single evaluation. So I'll have 900 evaluations to read when I get home. I read every single one of them. And I look for patterns. I look for people saying, I want more on this or I want more on that. Or, this other part was a waste of time and all. So then I come back and believe it or not, numerous times during the year, we tweak those things and reprint them. So we've already, we just started this tour and we've already done our first reprint. We did some edits to the book, changed things. And we made some, I think, pretty significant edits just based on things that people said. As long as I can keep tweaking my seminars as I go, I'm always excited about what I'm teaching. 
But if I had to do the same thing for 24 months, I, it would be what you just said. Like, okay, here we go again. I have to go on. But if I think I got something cool and fresh, I can't wait to get on stage. So this morning when we were, I got here early to teach the live classes and all, I could not wait to go on because I'd never done what I have done today where I'm shooting with continuous lights and then letting the audience shoot too. So it was, I couldn't wait to go on. Well, it's surprising that you read all those evaluations because it brings to mind the whole idea of how you receive criticism, which is a very important issue in your development as a photographer, but also in this case in your development in terms of an educator. But how do you how do you deal with criticism? Because it's something that, it's a very sensitive issue for a lot of photographers. They're scared of criticism. So how do you? And I'm sure that you get people who praise you, who love what you do, and then you also have people who think that. You know, what you do is terrible and the worst thing. So yeah. how do you how do you process all of that to be able to get what you feel like you need to become better at what you do? So here's the thing about criticism. I really, really hate it. Uh, I've found that I don't like it at all. Um, it, it's really tough. And I tell you what, and you know, as an author, um, Reading your own reviews online are—it's brutal because um, the the I, I and my editor here is here today actually Ted Wade is my editor over there and he's a wonderful wonderful editor and wonderful photographer. Can I tell you how great it is by the way to have a photographer as your book editor? It's fantastic. So I feel really, very blessed. It, Ted will tell you uh, when, when reviews come in, you get 400 five-star reviews, and you can't really remember what any of those said. But I can tell you what every one-star review says, <laughs> because it is. I mean, it's like, it's terrible. You wake up in the morning, playing with my daughter, having a great time. Oh, I'm going to have a little breakfast. I open my laptop, and I see, oh, there's a new review. And I go look at it, and someone's like, this book should never have been written. It, was, it is a travesty. And in fact, it just happened to where a high school teacher took one of my books and just went, page by page of why literally it never should have been written now there's all these five star 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 one star and you just sit there at breakfast and you just like it starts your day off really badly and they say you've been you've written 50 something books you should be able to let this stuff roll off your back it ruins my day it's like i go to work and i'm like and my assistant knows my assistant kathy i walk in and she's like what's wrong i got a review from a high school teacher and he just said my book never should have been written she goes you have 423 reviews and they're all five stars I know but it's, it's like I want to drive to the, the house and show him why it's not so bad so it's honestly it's really really tough so I'm reading through these evaluations with the evaluations I'm trying to look at it differently I have a chance to fix it and make that better I can fix the very next city so now my, my full-time photo assistant, Brad Moore, is with me, and he's a concert photographer, a tremendous kick-butt photographer. He goes with me. And so we change things on the road. We did new things just in the last two days that we've never done in any other city. Uh, we change things to try to make the day better. With a live seminar, I can fix it. With my book, it's too late. I can't fix it till the next you know, to the next version. I, I take the criticisms from the live training much better than I do from the book because I can't fix the book now, you know? And the bad thing about it is when someone fills out an evasion form, if I see that they were unhappy, and luckily, thankfully, it's very, very rare, uh, we offer an unconditional money-back guarantee. And here's what our guarantee is. If this isn't the best seminar you've ever seen at any price ever in your entire life, we'll refund your money, no questions asked. 
So we have a wide open policy. We train probably 20 something thousand people a year and we give like 14 refunds a year. So we, we have a tremendously positive thing. But some of those refunds come when I read somebody that didn't ask for their money back, but I'm reading their thing and I'm like, I'll call them on the phone and say, hey, you know what? This is Scott Kelby. And they're like, uh-oh. <laughs> and I'm like, I just want to tell you, I read your evaluation and I, I know that you didn't ask for your money back, but you were unhappy with some things here and they're legitimate and I've credited your card back. But that I can deal with. The book stuff, it drives me nuts. Uh, it really does. Because it can be a very unfair thing. It can be written by a 14-year-old kid in his parents' basement in his underwear. And it doesn't say, it just says, Robert Johnson. And you think, is it Dr. Robert Johnson? No, it's Bobby Johnson in his underwear. There's nothing that really, you know, there's no filter that stops that. So it's really, it's with the seminars, I'm okay with it. I can fix it in the seminars and I can make it better the very next city. The book stuff drives me nuts, which is why I'm announcing today that I am not writing books anymore. Just kidding, Ted. Okay. <laughs> Still on the topic of criticism, I, I just interviewed um, a photographer, and she had a bit of advice and says, pick your critics carefully. And with respect to this topic of receiving criticism, how about your photography? How do you sort of deal in terms of getting feedback, critical feedback, on your work as a photographer, the exclusion of everything else that you're doing in terms of writing and, and your education? Well, th what you just said that she just told you is a key thing. So I think that you should look for criticism, from criticism for people who you trust. And I think that, that goes through everything. There's a few people whose opinions I really, really value and I follow those people's guidance. But what I find that when you put a photo on Flickr, I was, you know what I say about Flickr? That's where you put photos if you want to get a hug. Because I don't care if you put a photo that you accidentally took of your shoe while you were sitting there. If you put it on Flickr, someone will go, oh, my God, amazing, inspired, the shoe, incredible. I mean, people will just line up to tell you how great it is. When it comes to photography, I will ask people for critiques that I trust. Like I just went through a – I had Joe McNally do a photo critique for me, which was brutal. I went through one with Dave Black, who shoots for Sports Illustrated. And on just on my sports stuff, it was phenomenal. Joe's was phenomenal because Joe let me know something about my photography that I, I didn't realize, and it's tried to make me do something different. Joe, I'll tell you guys what the critique was. It was not a very easy critique to take. So Joe looks through my whole book of people because I'm not going to show Joe like NFL football. He doesn't care. He looks through it and he says, "You know what? You're really good at making really beautiful people look really good." You need to shoot interesting people and make them look good. And I'm like, well, crap, that's hard. <laughs> <laughs> but it made me start to really want to and find subjects that are very interesting. So that, that actually, and he also went through and would tell me, you know what, this shot's kind of flat, this shot. And, and I really appreciated that because I understand how important pruning your, 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 portfolio is. I only want like 20 or 24 images maximum in any category, like people 24, football 24, you know. So um, I, when Dave Black went through my stuff, I did something different with Dave Black and this was the most terrifying thing ever because as photographers, right, we only show our best work. So I showed Dave my portfolio of my best work and he was like, oh, this is good, this is good. And then he started telling me, you know, why is, why is there a referee in this shot? What is he bringing to the shot? I'm like, and when people ask you questions, at least you realize, nothing. 
So I, I, he really helped me just in, in the general. And I, and I was, so the next day I was going to shoot another, uh, major league baseball game. And so what I did was I showed him my entire memory card of everything I shot so he could see. And that's something photographers just, you know, you just don't do that. Cause you're like, oh, and, he went through and he started seeing patterns and says, here's what you need to do. And you need to shoot from this other angle. And, you know, if the, if the pitcher's right-handed, then you need to be in the third base. And he had all these amazing things. I wrote, took all these notes. And I went the next night to the ballpark. I set up my first remote camera. I did all these things he told me. And I was able to apply them immediately. And I left with, I think, the best shots I had ever. It, it, when someone shows you what you should be doing... You didn't even know you weren't doing it. You know what I mean? It's like that you, you're ignorant what you're supposed to be doing. He showed me so many things. And so those two critiques, just sitting with them, I think did more for my photography in a half an hour apiece. You know, so I'm, I'm very good at having someone that I really respect critique it. You know, I would have you critique it. You know, I would have Ted critique it. But having somebody like... You know, just come by your blog and go, dude, there's a reflection in the window there and I can't get off it. Yeah. I'm like, oh, you know what I do though? Can I give you a secret, my secret weapon? Yeah, go ahead. I let people, cause I, I don't ever ask for criticism, by the way, so don't feel free not to come by my blog and give it. I don't say, <laughs> if I put up a shot, I'm telling a story. I don't go, what do you think? You never hear me say, let me know what your thoughts are. I don't do that because I hate criticism. But, so um, sometimes we'll, we'll, my, what my thing is, is I'll see somebody come in there and just go off on one of my pictures. Mr. Kelby, I can't believe you did this. And tell me everything that's wrong with my photograph. Then I go find their website. 99 times out of 100, they are horrendous photographers. I mean, like, worst ever. And so I think that they go out and find other photographers and try to bring them down. But one time I went to a guy and he was fantastic. And I felt, oh, I've done something wrong. But And it's only happened one time, but the guy was so good. I was like, yeah, he's probably right then. But, I mean, it's, so, it is, it's what you said at the very beginning is considering your source. Mm -hmm. So when people post a comment on my blog, they either put a phone, they'll, they'll put their web address, their email, or, or their website. Or I'll just do a search for their name and I'll find them. And I go back and I'm, I'm stunned at how bad some of them are. So that, then I go, ah. I just completely let it go. Except for that one time. That guy was so good. I wanted to write him a letter and say, everything you said was right. <laughs> I suck. Um, it's interesting that in this era, well, I think it's always been in photography that there was the assumption that if you own certain equipment and you mastered a certain process, in this case, you know, Photoshop and all this stuff, that you can become a great photographer. And I think both of us have seen a lot of people who have very expensive equipment who know their way around a piece of software like nobody else who still produce mediocre photographs. So you have access to the best equipment and you know Photoshop as good well as anybody else. In your opinion, what makes a good photographer great if, if all things being equal? Well, I think it's like anything else. So, um, my wife is, is a singer. Uh, she and I met in a band many, many years ago and she's a phenomenal singer. Now, of course, I am her husband. But before I was her husband, I was like, oh, my gosh, this singer is unbelievable. And she really is. She has got a gift from God of a range that. So I played in a band with her for like 12 years and we were married for most of it. But we never played a song where she couldn't sing it because it was too high. I don't care if it was Mariah Carey, Barbara Streisand, whatever it was. She can sing any song. She never went to school. She never studied it. She doesn't even really like singing. It's just kind of she was born with it. So she does it. 
And I think that there are people that are born with God-given talents that have just an, an eye for photography that don't know even how to use their cameras, but they take phenomenal shots. And I don't think it's something that you hear people really talk about very much. Nobody talks about there's this thing called talent that people are born with. I really think that people think that there's a button inside their camera that's going to turn on the thing that makes good shots. And I think that the people that don't really have that talent get really, really good at how to use their camera. That they know what every button and stuff. And I'll have guys come up to me and go, Mr. Kelby, I noticed that you use a D3. Well, the D3 has 32,364 blah, blah, blah. And they start getting into this whole technical thing and all. And I just want to go, can we stop this? Can I see your portfolio? Because I guarantee you, he is the worst photographer you've ever seen. Because he's not worried about what the image looks like. He's worried about the technology that made it. And so, I think that all things being level, if everybody had the exact same camera and the exact same lens, you would see people take phenomenal shots that have no idea what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And you'll see people take very, 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 very bad shots that know every single thing about the camera. I'm not a tech head. Uh, even about Photoshop, I'm not a tech head. Uh, I, I mean, I know what I know in Photoshop, but there's plenty of things that I don't know about. I, I'm just not a very technical guy, and, I, and I'm thinking that I'm, I'm praying that that's the reason why I, I've been successful writing digital photography books is because I don't really care about the pixels or the diodes or the chip or anything else. I'm more worried about the composition and the color and the light and all that kind of stuff. So I think that there are definitely people that have a knack for photography. Well, I can tell you one is, is my editor, Ted. So Ted says, hey, I bought a camera, and he sends me some shots from his first shoot. I almost drove here and slapped him. <laughs> he, he just has some kind of a, a natural knack for photography. It's not something you can teach. He, it's not something he read in a book. He didn't say, hey, this was in a book that, that Peach Pit published. He just has a thing where he just knows how to compose. Now, talking to Ted years from that first picture, can I tell you something? The first pictures Ted ever sent me wound up in one of my books. I asked Ted, can I use this in one of my books? That's how good they were. Now when I talk to Ted, he knows all the other stuff. But he was a good photographer the day he picked up a camera. It's just, you know what I mean? It's some people have it and some people don't. He's got it, which is why I hate him. When you started, you started, I think, with a newsletter. And then you started doing these sort of you had a graphic design company and yeah. you had someone come and teach you and then you started giving instruction on how yeah, I, I paid to 50 bucks them. to have a guy come teach me Photoshop best 50 bucks I ever spent yeah. and it's interesting because I think it came at a time sort of that perfect storm element in that you started teaching but it came at a time where a resurgence in interest in photography that was spurred by digital becoming much more accessible and I felt like you know you came in in a great time. Oh, yeah. And I think that really sort of helped launch everything that you've created. And I think some people would simply attribute that to luck, but I think there was more involved in you being able to take advantage of it in a way that other people who maybe may have done something similar couldn't. So what was it about your approach and the way you saw it that has allowed you to make what could have been relegated to a small regional thing into this huge national, international thing. Well, I do think a lot of it was luck. I mean, I think timing is everything, and I think that you're right. We were at that right point at the right time. I think there, there are two things. Uh, when you have a magazine or a newspaper, 
it, it opens doors for you. It, it lets you do things and go places. I remember it was John F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, he, he was, remember that he started a magazine called George? Do you remember that? Okay. And, and somebody went to him and said, look, you, you, this is ridiculous. You, nobody starts a magazine. You're just going to lose money. And he said, nobody starts a magazine for money. You start a magazine for power. And so the thing, and of course that was not why I did it. And I didn't even understand the concept of power. When I started my first magazine, I just, honestly, God, truth, the reason why we started it was, it was called Mac Today. And my buddy and I, Jim, sat together and we thought, man, if we started a magazine, we could get free software to review. And that was the dream. If we could get free, I'm, I'm not kidding. This is the honest to God truth. We thought, man, if you think we could get Adobe to send us something, that was the dream was to be able to do that. And so we started a little magazine. So I think that the luckiest thing was starting that magazine because it opened doors. And we realized after a very short time, there is no way to make money with a magazine. So in 1993, we lucked into the idea uh, of, of doing a Photoshop seminar. And we advertised it in the magazine. So we just took a full page ad out. And we used to give, it wasn't a magazine, it was a newspaper tabloid. We gave it away free at CompUSA, and there was a place called Computer City at the time. And we, we had racks at the door, so as you're walking out the door, there was a free rack, Mac Today, free, they'd pick it up. And we had 153 people show up for our first seminar in 1993. And that was the first day we realized, we're going to make money with our magazine, but not through the magazine, you know, through through doing something else. And so by the next year, we had done 24 seminars. Now we do 80 or 82 a year here in the United States, in Canada. My next stop is Cologne, Germany, Amsterdam, and then back to the U.S. And we were just, of course, in Canada. I think it was really the magazine that opened the doors. Because if you call somebody and say, we're with a magazine, it's amazing the stuff that they will do for you. And we transferred from a, uh, a newspaper into a magazine, and then we went on newsstands, and we just kind of grew and stuff. But I, I will say this. The thing that made it happen and what our advantage was was having a publication. It gave us a legitimacy. It opened doors and did things that we, I could have never done just as I'm a Photoshop trainer. But as an editor and publisher, honestly, it was that was the, the thing. I think um, you offer a great lesson on what it takes to run a successful business or under- or um, uh, or anything, and all you have to do is read your acknowledgement page in your books, which I always take a great pleasure in reading, and that's not that's not often because you you really acknowledge the importance of having good people around you, and every time I read an acknowledgement page for one of your books, I really get that because it's you can't achieve anything, especially being a photographer and do it alone. And I think the act of photography is a very isolated, uh, can be a very isolated experience, but I think that y- you demonstrate the importance of having a community, if nothing else, and it's one of the best things that you build, not only for yourself, but for all the people who attend your workshops and, and take advantage of what you offer. Well, I think if I had to point to what, what helped make us a success, I have to give a lot of the credit to my wife. She is has, I guess you would call it the gift of discernment. She is really, really great at meeting someone and knowing whether they're a real person, whether they're a good person. She just has a, a, a knack. You know, it's like she would meet you in five seconds and not like you. But, no, no, but I mean, you know what I mean? She would it's meet, the cologne. No, it is the cologne. No, 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 but she would meet you. I can tell, I know that she would like you because I like you. But, we, but she really just has an act. Like, we hired a guy, Felix Nelson, who is to this day our creative director. 
And she interviewed him first, and she came out to me. We were a very small company, like five employees. We have like 90 now. We had five back then. And she walks in, she says, honey, that's your creative director. You can go in and meet him and interview him, whatever you want, but I'm telling you, he's the one. And I went, okay. And I went in there, and I'm like, well, he seems very good and all. He's unbelievable. He's the greatest guy ever. All of the key people in our company that have been hired, she will walk in and go, he's the one. We just added a new guy to uh, to our new Photoshop guy. So we did this nationwide search for a Photoshop guy. And he, we have two buildings on the street that we're, we work in because we're, we couldn't fit in all one building. And we're, I'm down, down the street uh, where all the cool kids are. And so this guy, Pete, comes in. And he comes in for an interview. And he just meets my wife in the hallway. She doesn't realize he's there for the Photoshop gig. And so later in the day, I said, hey, I want you to meet Pete. She goes, oh, I met him this morning. He's here for the Photoshop guy? And yeah, she goes, you should hire him. He's the one. I'm like, what? She goes, honey, I'm telling you what. I met him for two minutes. I loved him. He's great, fantastic. He's the one. I don't care who else. He's the one. And I'm like, he's the one. Because I, I trusted her intuition on this stuff uh, so well. She's a, a tremendous businesswoman. So, although my wife is the most private person in the world, so if she knew that I was telling you any of this, she would, she is, I kid you not, she loves privacy on a level you can't believe. But she is basically the brains behind everything that we do. Because you've met me, you know it ain't me. So, <laughs> so, uh, so she runs the business side of all of our business. Our offices are right next to each other, but she deals with accounting and with shipping and with customer service and with uh, HR and the overall business plan. So I might come back from a trip to Adobe and go, hey, we want to do this really, really great thing. And, and I say, and I think we should do this and that and the other, but then it's her job to make it happen with all these other people. So her intuition in business is terrifying. And she's, she's not scared to do anything. Her big sentence is, honey, if we don't do it, somebody else will. And so it always kind of makes you go, you're right, you're right, we should just try it, you know. So she she makes us try things that we would normally be scared to do. But she's very much like she's in the front carrying the flag going, let's go, let's go. And so, and believe it or not, I'm a little more cautious. You know, I'd be the one to go, I don't know, what do you think? And she's like, honey, we got to do this. So I give her a lot of the credit for having the, the ability to pick all the right people. And she's never really picked anybody ever that wasn't fantastic and and we realize that it's not the building or anything else that teaches people that does it it's all the people that we have we really value our employees tremendously we we let them know it in how we pay them and how we treat them and the things that we do i mean it's our company is those people so we you know it's like you know i have to hate to say this but have you have anybody in here flown u.s air it's not the greatest airline right but the president of the company writes a letter up at the front where he tells you what a great company it is. And I'm like, this, have you ever flown U.S. Air? I'm like, you need to go back and coach where I am and see what's really the U.S. Air experience is. But when we say these things about our, our employees and about the people that are our customers, which are NAP members and all, we really mean it, you know. We all worked for somebody else. My wife, my operations manager, Felix, we all worked for other people. And my wife and I always said, if we ever have our own company, we're going to do it different. We're going to be really great to our employees. We're going to do really, really great stuff, and we're going to give them tremendous power to do things. So our customer service department's like that. If you call up and say, I'm unhappy with anything, they will flood you with stuff. They will do. They will refund you money. They'll send stuff to you. They'll FedEx stuff because they have no barrier on what they can do. Like we say, if someone's ha unhappy, you can only give them this. 
We're like, you have to do whatever it is to make them happy. And that's my wife's whole thing. That's her thing is like, everybody must be happy. So, you know, I, I, I am able to just focus on the teaching part of it because she does all the hard stuff. I hate to say that she's my secret weapon, but she is my secret weapon. Well, you shoot a lot of sports, and I know you're very passionate about your football. Yes. And uh, I, I want you to tell a story that happened recently in which a uh, monopod gave up its life to save yours. Why don't you uh, share that little story oh, with us? It was. So it was the NFC Championship game last year that my beloved Chicago Bears are, are one game away from the Super Bowl. They're playing the Green Bay Packers in Chicago. I have a sideline pass to shoot the game. And... Uh, I'm in the end zone on the first possession, and, and Green Bay is moving down the field. And I'm set up in the end zone because Green Bay's on their opening stinking drive, is going to score. Very upsetting. I have a 400-millimeter lens on a, tri on a monopod, and then I have over my shoulder a second body, a D700, with a 24 to 70 on it. So in case I get really close to the action, I can switch lenses. Because if you have a 400 millimeter and they start running your way, it's just a blurry mess. So I'm, I'm waiting there, and uh, Aaron Rodgers from Green Bay takes the snap, and he starts running around coming towards me. And I'm like, oh, he's coming over here. And I switch hands with my monopod, and I grab my 24 to 7, and I start shooting. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm in the right place. I can't believe Green Bay is going to score on the opening drive against my Bears, but at least I'm in the right place. Aaron Rodgers reaches out to cross the, he's got the ball out in front of him to cross the goal line. He does, and he tumbles. And so Aaron Rodgers is where this gentleman is here in the first seat, and I'm right here. And he starts tumbling, and I think he's never going to make it over to me. And bam, he takes my tripod out from under my monopod, and I fall backwards. But I'm not hurt because I was on my knees. So I get back up, and I'm still firing. And he's right there, and he gets up and he runs, and he's, you know, all those guys come over and they're all partying. And I look, and my monopod is broken in half and laying there on the floor. It's just the first possession of the game. How am I going to carry a 400 millimeter lens? But I'm just like, I'm smiling and I'm shooting. I'm like, oh my gosh. And then I realized he just broke my monopod. So I wrote a long article called Aaron Rodgers owes me 250 bucks. And I had all these shots that I took while he's getting up. And so I wrote fake captions and told this fake story how the guys were like, dude, I think that was a get so you should probably pay him. And I wrote all these things and it got picked up by Sports Illustrated and Sporting News and NBC Sports and all. And it went all over the place. And uh, it just, it was just one of those funny things. By the time I got back to my office, really right stuff had read it and sent me their brand new free mega monopod and then get so sent me an even better one so i mean they were they were both like their top of the line ones. so as it turned out i got two free monopods out of that it was the greatest day but then the bears lost and they didn't go to the super bowl because i would have got to shoot the super bowl oh, i know God. i know because i had a hookup if the bears won i didn't Get to. I watched it at home, though. It was great. <laughs> Just like being there. You love football, and everything that you've done gives you an opportunity to be there on the sidelines making pictures. So how much of an onus do you feel to going, okay, here I am, Scott Kilby. I do all this stuff, teaching people Photoshop, and here I am on the sideline, an opportunity that people dream of. What kind of pressure do you feel to make a great photograph of football? It's, that's an interesting question because it's different. Two years ago, 
uh, I was just getting a pass here and there to shoot. I would, if I knew somebody, if I knew the team photographer, I met somebody. But I realized if I wanted to get really good at shooting football, and I really wanted to get good at shooting football, I would have to get a job shooting football. So I signed on with a wire service to shoot for them because getting access to NFL games, to Major League Baseball, to pro basketball games is very, very, very tightly controlled. It's, it's true. So, but I thought, you know, if I sign on for a wire service, I'll have to produce. I'll have to do exactly what the pros do. I'll have to shoot the games. But at least I had enough shots from those hookups that I could put a portfolio together to show a, a, a professional wire service. So I did. I submitted my stuff to a wire service, and I got hired. Apparently in my part of Florida, there wasn't that many people shooting for them. So I got signed on, and then I was getting you know assignments all the time. When I'm shooting for myself... I'm very, very relaxed and I'm just having fun and I feel like, well, you know, there's four quarters, I'll get something. But when I'm shooting for South Creek Global Media, that's when I'm sweating. Because now I'm, I have a client, someone's expecting me to come through with images and they're expecting me to upload them at half time. I have to upload seven shots. It's not the uploading, it's not the editing, it's the keywording and metadata that kills you because every single image has to have a complete description of who every player that's in the picture. It has to say, number seven, Aaron Rod Green Bay Packer quarterback Aaron Rodgers throws a pass to number 14. You have, you know, during the second quarter of gameplay at Soldier Field in Chicago for every single photo that you upload. It's misery. But I do it because it gives me the experience. The only way I'm going to get better at it, you can't practice NFL football at home. <laughs> you, you can't practice it at a high school game. You got to go to a college or an NFL level game to, to get good at that stuff. So I signed on with a wire service. I still shoot for them today. They just asked me if I could shoot the whole season of the USF Bulls, uh, to which I said, absolutely. Um, so you get a hard card and then you don't have to worry about a pass. You just show up and shoot the game. So that's what, what I would be getting for the season. So I, I did it. Though That's when I feel the pressure. When I'm shooting for South Creek, I feel tremendous pressure to turn in images to them because if I don't turn in images that will sell, they will not use me anymore. They will not give me assignments. So I, I really feel like I want to stay with them because it's it's my ticket to practice and maybe make money, but it's really about the, because I can tell you sports photography, you will not meet a sports photographer. You say, what do you do on weekends? They go, well, I shoot in the day and then I do a wedding. They all shoot weddings because the money in sports photography is, is zero. So it's, I mean, it's very, very hard to make a buck. It really is. It didn't used to be, which is why when you're on the NFL sidelines, all the other photographers there are incredibly bitter. They are, they are bitter. Oh, it's, they're the most unhappy, miserable. Now, I'll go shoot. I, now for, I shoot all kinds of sports. I'll shoot motorsports. They're the happiest photographers you ever met. They're all happy and they love it and they love motorsports. But you go to a football game and they're all like, ah, this business sucks now. Ten years ago I was making 50,000 a year. Now I can't. I mean, they're, they're miserable. And, and they don't talk. They don't talk to each other. They don't hang out. It's, it's not good. Uh. Baseball, they're really, you know, they're nice guys and it's everybody's sitting around. Cause you're sitting for baseball is the greatest thing to shoot. You just sit in a chair. I go to places where they have a table and a hole for your monopod. You got your, your hot dog and your drink and you oh, it's the ninth inning. And there's only three plays that are going to happen in baseball. It's wonderful. And when I shoot, I shoot in an air conditioned dome. It's just, it's the greatest uh. sport. And that's why everybody's so happy. You're like, Hey, Frank, so what you been doing? 
You know, football, you're running up and down. You know what the worst thing in football is for a photographer? What? So you're, it's 22 degrees. You're outside. It's snowing. I'm shooting Pittsburgh Steelers. You get that. You have to shoot on your knees most of the time. You're on your knees. You get set. And they go, false start, 10 yards. And now you're no longer in position. So now you got to get up and you have to run all the way around the bench. You have 24 seconds to get up off the ground in the cold, grab your gear, run all the way around the bench, find a new place, get set, and get down there. I, I hate running with equipment. I hate running in the cold. A false start or an offsides or anything, and you're just like, you know, because you're just you were you were in the right place, at the right time, and there's no play. You got no shot, and you're running. Yeah. Well, we're in a, an Adobe event where we. They're showcasing all the amazing things their their software does, and they have people here showing people how to do different things in Lightroom and and, and Photoshop. But with, with you, how do you feel that the software and all the capabilities that it offers has improved or changed the way that you use the camera and make photographs? I think it, I think it's well. Obviously, the impact is is huge. But can I tell you what it is? In particular, I think it is, is this. I used to shoot film, so I was a film shooter originally, and 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 my brother got me into it, and he's a very good photographer, and we we got so obsessed with photography that I absolutely burned out on it. I took all of my equipment and literally put it in my attic and didn't touch it for 12 years, and it wasn't until the first time I got a digital camera that it flipped the switch and reignited my passion. But here's the thing. When you were a photographer, a film photographer, you had two times you were happy. When you were taking the photograph, that was fun. And maybe when you got the photograph back, it wasn't always. Sometimes it was terrifying when you got the photograph back. But those were your only two times of fun. So you had click, 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 and then hmm. With Photoshop and with Lightroom, you have this new whole fun area that I think can be almost more fun than the click, 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 or the ah. It's the process of getting there. And I think that's why, you know, one of the reasons why Photoshop is, is what it is today is because it opens up a new area of control and being able to finally get it your way. Because when we did film, you could tell, like let's say that I shot a roll of 36 and I found a particular frame so what I would do is I would go to, well, in our neck of the woods it was called Eckerd's, but it would be what is CVS or Walgreens today, and I would run the roll of film. And then if I saw a really good frame, then I would take the negative and have it done right at a pro lab. And you could tell the guy running the lab, can you make the sky a little darker? Can you burn in this? And, the burn? and if it was a good enough guy, he might do it. Yeah. But today you have all that control and it can be so much fun. It's intoxicating to have that control and to be. So now there's not just two fun parts of photography. There's this third fun part that really sometimes I think can be your real, real passion in it. So I think that it's given us more control, more power, but more importantly, more fun. You get the instantaneous things. You can do things you could never do before. You can crop the ways you want to do. It's just, it's really revolutionized. And I think, I don't think digital photography would ever be where it is, even though it's free film now and all that kind of stuff, without the editing process. Because that editing is, it's just so much fun. And I, I talk to people and they're just so over the top about being able to do it themselves, having that experience of editing, you know, their own images and, and my father-in-law, he's crazy about it, you know. And if he, he just took a picture and got a print, he would never be crazy about it. He would just, oh, I take a lot of pictures. 
but he thinks of himself on a whole nother level, like um, the, the editor, you know. So I, I think that's what, what Photoshop has brought. And I think the other reason why, I think one of the reasons why Photoshop is so incredibly popular to this day is because it has so much depth that you never feel like you're looking at your photo and you never feel like, well, I know what I want to do, but Photoshop won't do it. You may not know how to do it, but you never think it's Photoshop's fault. You know that, because Photoshop can do anything you can imagine. You think, okay, I don't know how to do this thing, but somehow I can learn it. And so there are a few things in life that have such incredible depth that you never feel like there's, you never hit a wall. You never hit that wall with Photoshop, right? You never get to that part where you go, I know this so well. I know everything this can do. I've done all I can do in Photoshop. I never do that. In fact, I found like, and you guys will probably agree with me, the better you get at Photoshop, the more you realize you can do. It's like it opens more doors as you go rather than closing them. Because a lot of things, you start to narrow what you can do as you get better. Photoshop is exactly the opposite. So that middle section between the photograph and the final print is a ball. Let's talk about the print. How important is the print in your process? Do you feel that that really completes your vision or, or are you like many photographers out there where they just don't have enough time or opportunity to print their images and, and most of the images end up just on the, on the screen? Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky in that I have a full-time photo assistant. So Brad Moore is my full-time photo assistant. Uh, he's a photographer himself and he's pretty good at printing. So I'm very guilty of sending photos directly to Brad Moore and he will print them. And sometimes I just print them just like, to, just to see. Like sometimes he'll come in and go here and he'll, he always, he does it really quickly. So he'll say they're on your desk in the morning. So I come in and I look and there's 17 by 24 prints or whatever. But I do find this about, about making prints. I, number one, everybody should do it. It, it's, there is something about seeing it and it being it in print that makes it real. Because if it's just inside your computer, it's like it's not born yet. You know what I mean? It's like hanging out there. It's in space. It's in the cloud. Let's go to the cloud. It's in there. But when it comes out on a print, it's there is something magical about it. And the reaction that people have to a print, I don't care how great they think it looks on screen, is dramatically better. Look in the back of the room over there. Look at those incredible black and white prints. If I showed you those on a, a laptop, they would still be great images, but at that size on a wall like that, it has a whole different emotional impact. And I think that's what it is, the emotional impact of it. So what I would do, and I will do for everyone in this room today, all 595 of you, <laughs> if, if you don't have a printer, do this. Go to mpix.com, okay, mpix.com. And go and you just take an, you open an account, you'll have to open it, it's free, just, you know, fill out your name and all. And pick an image and have them print you one that's like 16 by 20. Don't get it 8 by 10, that's stupid. Get a 16 by 20 print and have them ship it to your house. It's gonna cost like 17 or 18 bucks. But it's that easy. You sit, you know, you're in your underwear, hoo hoo hoo, drop it on there, upload. It's there in 10 seconds and they will ship it to you flat. It comes shipped flat in a box. You open that box and look at that print and you will, unfortunately, for what well, good for them, you will use them forever because it's so, you can just drag and drop and you'll get a fabulous print. And there's a little box that says, don't color correct. I always let them color correct. I went to the room where they do their color correction. They're, they're in Kansas. 
The people doing their color correction are insane. They sit there with a three buttons, RGB and a monitor, and they just... I, I watched them for a few minutes. I'm like, you can color correct my stuff anytime you want. So they're really... I mean, they're like freaky. So um, let them do that. And I will, I will give you this, and I kid you not, I'm not kidding. If you do that, and you send it to MPix, and you don't like it, you think, you know what, I'm just, I don't like the job that they did. They will not give you your money back. But I will personally send you a check for that print. I will, my, I've offered this for two and a half years and no one has ever, ever taken me up on it. I'm serious. I won't, I will never go to MPix and say, hey, somebody wanted their money back. Can you give me 17 bucks? I'll send it to you myself. That's how absolutely thrilled you will be when you see your work big on paper. There is an emotional impact to it. Now, MPix just happens to do a brilliant job. And you can go to another thing. I will only vouch for MPix, but you can go to White House or any place you want. But there is an emotional thing that happens when you see your work big and you feel that paper and people see it that I don't care how big a monitor you put it on will never replace the print. The print is king. It's the thing. And so if you want to feel, if you want to take that next step in your photography, if you not made a large print, just try it. You have nothing to lose. I will send you the money back. All you do, go to scottkelby.com, go to my blog, tell me you got a print and you're not happy with it. I'll take care of you. Now, this only applies to living people in this room. This does not go to the bazillion people that listen to this, because I don't know them. These people I know, look at them, they seem very friendly. But I know that there's probably some people that are listening to your podcast that have written reviews of my books. <laughs> I'm not going to send them 17 bucks or whatever the heck it is. But for you guys here today, I would absolutely do it. Well, you, you get asked a lot of questions. You get asked a lot of questions today about you know, various different things. Uh, people ask you questions about equipment, about software, about process. And a lot of it comes from people who really have a desire, if not to become professional, uh, to have photography be a larger part of their lives. So considering how many questions you get all the time, what do you think are the one or two questions that they should be asking that would help them achieve whatever they're aspiring to? Wow, man, that's a good question. Because I know what questions I get asked a lot. The most number one question I get asked is, how do I make a living in this? Like, I'm a new photographer. You know, I'm coming out. What advice would you give me? I get that question asked the most. But what, you know what? I guess what question I think that they should ask is not so much about their photography so much, but about, about how to make a living. That's the question they should be asking. I just read an article in, in PPA's magazine, excellent magazine, professional photographer, and the guy they interviewed says, if you're going to be a successful photographer, your day is going to be like my day. 90% of my time is spent marketing my work. 10% is spent shooting photography. And I think that's what it is. I think the dream is to do something that's your passion for a living, right? I mean, that's if you do something that's your passion, you'll never work a day in your life because every day is a blast. You know, you're like, I can't believe I met. I'll never forget this. When I first started teaching Photoshop, a guy came up to me at the seminar and said, I, I was working in like shipping at this company. And I started like playing with my photos on my own and they needed me to do a photo for something. They knew that, well, hey, Earl has a, you know, he has a computer and he'll do it. And he said, and I did it and they moved me from shipping to like corporate communications. And he goes, 
And now I had a back-breaking job, and it was really, really tough. And now all I do is photography all day long. And he goes, I, I cannot believe they pay me to do this. This is every, I would do it for free and I, and I have, I'm making more money now than I did when I was in shipping and I can't wait to get to work it every day. So I think that's the dream for, if it's like my brother is really into golf. If he could be a pro golfer, that would be it. So for, for my brother to be a pro golfer is for us to work every day at photography and make a, a living enough to take care of our family. Nobody wants to be a starving photographer. So you, you want to, you don't have to be, you know, wildly successful. You don't have to be Jay Maisel or something, but to, to be able to, to feed your family and do photography and do something that you love, man, that's the dream. And so what question I wish they would ask me is, you know, what should I do? How can I make a, a buck? How can I do something? Because all they want to talk about is the lighting and the settings and the camera and stuff. And uh, and I talked to a guy. I talked to a, such a great guy today, really nice. And I really felt bad for him. He said, you know, I, I'm doing weddings and I'm just struggling. I am. I I don't know how to make a living in this. And he said, I, I've got the lights down. I've got pocket wizards. I've got radio poppers. I've got this. I got that. And I said, so is your problem like technical or marketing wise? He's like. I can't get any work. And I said, man, you're in the toughest business there is, wedding photography. I, if I meet a sports photographer on weekends, they're shooting weddings. If I meet an architectural photographer on weekends, they're shooting weddings. If I meet any photographer that does anything on weekends, they're shooting weddings. And I told him, I said, you're competing against everybody because everybody shoots a wedding now. You, when you go shoot a wedding, there's 25 people there with DSLRs shooting the wedding right beside you. If you're sh the wedding photographer, there are people that ask you to move out of the way so they can take a shot. So, and it's, I mean, it's true. So I can't think of anything harder right now than being a wedding photographer. It's incredibly hard because you're competing against everybody. So I felt bad for him. So my advice to him was, you need to join the PPA. So my association, the National Association of Photoshop Professionals, we try to teach you Photoshop. What the PPA is fantastic at is teaching you how to make a living as a photographer. And I said, you're, you're barking down the wrong tree. If you know all this flash stuff, you're not a flash picture away from getting a job. You need to go the opposite direction. I said, go get Professional Photographer Magazine. Join PPA. They do workshops around the country. Go to uh, ppa.org or PPA Mag, I think, too, is, or .org, and, and follow them. And, and they're telling you how to deal with these things. They're showing you photographers and what they're doing to, to get work and all this kind of stuff. But i got to tell you, it's a tough read because they're not saying there's money falling from the sky. All the stories are about how hard it is to make a living. Who's making a living as a landscape photographer? Who's making a living as a travel photographer? Who's making a living as a nature photographer? How do you make a living today as a photographer? It's a challenge. It's it a is. magic question. That is. So that's the question I wish they would ask. However, I don't have the answer. <laughs> but but here's the thing. If they're asking the question, they're barking up the right tree. They're worried about their business. When they're asking about camera settings and lighting and what they should buy next, they're thinking, I'm a light, I'm a this, I'm a that away from being a success. They really need to work on the marketing. They really need to work on marketing themselves and their marketing skills. Not Because so, there's a bazillion stuff out there on where to put the flash. So it's really all the other stuff that, you know, they really should be taking business courses and marketing courses because, man, it's tough. Yeah. Well, my, my final question is going to be a tough one for you. But uh, uh, I, I think you're up for the challenge. 
And the last question I always ask is I ask my guest to recommend one photographer for our listeners and our people here to discover and explore. And it can be any photographer, a photographer you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? All right. So my default answer would be Joe McNally because he's just such an inspiration. But I'm not going to do that, even though I just did it. So pretend that's not my answer. That really wasn't. It would be Michelle McNally. It, now, here's the thing. I might be a little off on the spelling. But there's a guy named Manuel Libadero. This guy is from the Philippines. Do you know who he is, Dad? Oh, I know who you're talking about. Is that yes. guy? Yeah, Manny Librado. I think. Yes, that's yeah. it. That's it. This guy, I don't know what he's doing. But he shoots shots in the Philippines of places and people. And it's usually people in a location. I want to warn you, it will make you want to throw away your camera. He should be the entire marketing budget for the Tourism Council for the Philippines. Is it in Indonesia or the Philippines? I think he's in the Philippines. He's in the Philippines. Philippines. There's just something magical about his stuff. It is, it's real, but at the same time, his post-processing skills are insane it's when you take someone who has phenomenal vision great subjects in an incredible location with great photoshop skills that guy creates pure magic and i think he is a school teacher or that he, he taught is he? he teaches he teaches uh because a lot of his students are his um, subjects and subject matter. I'm going to beat the crap out of that guy. <laughs> anyway, let me tell you, seriously, that guy is, he is magic. So I'm going to go away from the default one because, you know, Joe is such an inspiration to me. We're going to go with Manuel. What was his? You had it. Librado. Librado. That is it. Manuel Librado. And if you search for Manuel plus Philippines plus Insano great photographer, <laughs> it will come up. And he, he's building his own fan base. Yeah. So you knew about him. Ted knew about him. Yeah. So what, we'll have links on that on the on the blog page for the oh, site. Oh, good. You'll find so, that. Yeah, oh, good. We'll, we'll get that up there. So I want to leave a little time for people here to to ask you some questions before we close. Does anyone uh, have a question here for Scott Kelby? Hey, before we do that, can I just say something? Yeah. Is okay. I, I've done many many interviews over the year because I have great people in my publicity department. Thank you, Sarah Jane. So, um, But you've given me some of the most thoughtful questions I've ever had asked in any interview. It's not the same old stuff. I'm, I'm not just blowing smoke here because it's over and I could just leave. <laughs> but, but seriously, thank you. That was I, I, I hadn't had to think in the terms of some of the questions that I've ever had to answer today like I did today. So thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. So I'm Paul. And uh, I always enjoy listening to Scott and uh, his seminars and books and everything. Thank you, Paul. Really appreciate it. So I'm on the five-star end of the critic scale. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. So my question to you is, what's what's next? You always seem to, every couple of years, come up with something that's new and different about um, Scott Kelby. And um, you know, what's what are you thinking is the next next thing around the corner? I do have something that we have not announced. I don't know if I should announce it now. Okay. okay. But don't tell anybody. Well, it might, it might not matter because I think it's going to be happening in a couple of weeks. So you're the first people to hear this. We're launching a new magazine on the iPad. And it's called Light It. It's a lighting magazine. Nothing but lighting. Off-camera flash, studio photography. 
lighting, lighting, lighting. In our first issue, feature story from Zach Arias, interviews from Joe McNally, lighting techniques from Frank Duerhoff. I have a column called Photo Recipes. It's the most beautiful magazine we've ever created. It looks fantastic. It reads fantastic. The first issue is free. Subsequent issues on the iPad, I think, are $2.99. be published eight times a year. I saw the first, the final version before it goes to Apple the other day, and it's insane. And I don't want to, I'm not taking credit for it because it was designed by that guy, Felix. And we went out and got our very favorite photographers. And we're also introducing some new guys that are up and coming that are really, really great at lighting. So um, we've got our first two issues are done and under the belt. We're going to uh, put out the first two a little closer together than they will normally be uh, because we don't want people to wait so much after the first issue to get the second issue. But uh, it'll be every six weeks. And it's a regular magazine like everything else. Reviews, news, articles. Looks just like any other magazine. But here's what we did that I think I'm most proud of. I think one of the reasons why magazines have not taken off on the iPad is because every time you get a magazine on the iPad, you have to learn how to use it. Some scroll down, some scrolls to the left, some you have to click a button. And like when I read some things, I'm like, I don't know where to go next. And I don't always know if I've actually read the whole magazine because I missed a section or something. I told my crew, I said, when we do this, we have to do it like, like a regular book or a regular magazine would be. I just want to swipe. I don't want to, it has not to do crazy things. I did ask for one thing that any photograph that you click on goes full screen. So that's good. So if we have a, now I told them, remember, this is weird for our company. We've been, been publishing magazines for years and every time you want to add a page, it costs money. I'm like, now pages are free. So, uh, there's lots of big pictures, but anytime you see any illustration or any picture, you click on it and zoom, it goes full screen. We did embed two videos in the first one, but I don't want, I just said, I don't want a bunch of gimmicky stuff. I don't want there to be an instruction page on how to read a magazine. It should work just like you think it should. So that's what I really like about it. We're working with a company in, in France to develop it. It's done. It's going up to Apple here maybe in a week. So I mean, I'm hoping it'll be out within a week or so. But just look for it. It'll be called Light. It'll be free. Um, it's something different for us. Uh, our graphics team have always designed print magazines. So they're really excited because, well, it gave them a little more job security, right? So they're like, we're doing another magazine. But there are things I can tell you I love about publishing a digital magazine. And I, I won't read one on the web. I won't read any digital magazine on the web. But on my iPad, I found that I actually, if it doesn't have all kinds of weird bells and whistles, I like reading it better on the iPad. Like I'll read popular photography or any of these other magazines that I, I download. I like it better on the iPad than I like it in real, in real person. I don't know if I feel that way about books yet, but I definitely feel that way about magazines. So it's exciting. So to answer your question, that is the new cool thing coming that you got out of me before the official publication. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> well, let's thank Scott again for a great, uh, great time. And thank you, Scott. It's been an honor. Thanks very much, everybody. Thanks. Thanks again for joining me. If you have any comments, please email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. And if you are interested in following me in the social networks on the interwebs, you can follow me on Flickr, Twitter, Facebook, 
And now Google Plus links to most of these can be found on the website. The editor for this episode is one of my favorite people in San Francisco, Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And this is Ibarian X Perello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.